Previously on Beta. I was trying to listen to a record. Oh, help me, Dr. Sayers. I had a difficult day yesterday. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, critic and journalist Keith Phipps on the man who has made more than 100 films and inspired a million memes, the one and only Nicolas Cage. The Rock works in part because he plays his character as a, a nerd who, not unlike Red Rock West, kind of resists the sort of movie he's in. Also, writer Erica Krauss on how her familiar-looking face helped her become a successful private investigator. I look familiar. I, I look ordinary. I look like everybody's third-grade friend, right? And they're like, oh, they call people. I get called every name. Hey, Violet, I haven't seen you in 40 years. No, I'm not Violet. But first, Dana Gould. He started his stand-up comedy career when he was only 17, and Dana has been busy ever since. When he's not performing stand-up, he's acting, writing, and working as a voice artist. Dana has performed several voices on The Simpsons and served as a writer for the show. Dana is also the host of the popular podcast, The Dana Gould Hour. These days, Dana keeps busy turning his obsession with the Planet of the Apes movie franchise into comedy gold. Remember Dr. Zayas, the intelligent and very evolved orangutan from the Apes films? The one who served as the Minister of Science and the Chief Defender of the Faith? Well, now this character has a whole new career thanks to Dana. Dr. Z is now hosting his own YouTube talk show, Hanging with Dr. Z. This monkey means business. Doctor, we'll see you now. Dana, hello! Dana, what was it about the Planet of the Apes franchise that you found so fascinating? That is a great question, and I wish I had an answer for it. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you did, too. Can you make something up? Well, I did. Yeah, I can. I, I remember very clearly, I have a visual memory I remember very clearly driving by the drive-in theater in my hometown and seeing Beneath the Planet of the Apes on the marquee. And my dad must have said it because I was too young to read. I was like four or five. But it just rang a bell. Like that sound, that Planet of the Apes, there's something about it I found interesting. The next year in 1971, I was six. I saw the next movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, was playing, and I made them take me, which was no small feat for a six-year-old. And I just, there's something, you know, some people, it's baseball or the Beatles or, you know, uh, whatever it is that rings your bell the loudest. I always found something, there's something about the concept and the visual style of the makeup that I just found very compelling. That said, if you walked into my house you wouldn't know this. Like, I, I'm not a lunatic. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I have, no. Yeah, I have kids. I have a life. I, I just have a weird connection to it that I really can't explain. Mm, yeah, but you didn't see the original Planet of the Apes till what, after you'd seen the, the second and third movie? Yeah, exactly. I saw Escape from the Planet of the Apes in the summer of 1971, Battle for the Planet of the Apes in the summer of 1973, and then... Planet of the Apes I saw on TV in September of 1973 
when it premiered. And don't think I wasn't aware that it was coming on television. Mm-hmm. And were you aware of the, the ending, the twist ending I was of the not, original? I was not. I was, for uh, a nine-year-old, appropriately moved. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and while you were working as a writer on the Ben Stiller show, you used your obsession with Planet of the Apes to create content for the show. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I wrote a sketch called Planet of the Apes, the musical, which was an advertisement for the musical as they do like when Hamilton comes to town, like, you know, and they show little clips from it and, you know, Hamilton at the Apollo Theater for three weeks only. Uh, yeah, it was gonna and, be like and audience testimonials too, right? Yeah, audience yeah. Was, oh, I loved it. It was great. It was the Hamilton-esque yeah. thing ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so... I thought that would be a funny Planet of the Apes. The musical would be really funny. And Ben is a fan. It would do three things. Uh, Ben is a fan, so he would want to do it. I would get to wear the makeup, which would be cool. And I would get a sketch into the show. So, And then the other sketch, because normally what you do in the show is we'd have a sketch in the first half, and then you'd need a sketch in the second half. And I thought, free sketch from the producers of Planet of the Apes, the musical, Dr. Zayas is Mark Twain tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be in the I'll be in the makeup. I'll be on the set, and but it was literally very pragmatic. I'm going to be in the makeup. We're not going to have to build another set. We're not going to have to do a company move. You know, all of the financials lined up. So it's a great two jokes for the price of one. And then we got canceled. Yeah, and then you guys won an Emmy. <laughs> we yeah, after we got canceled, we won yeah. an Emmy. So where did the idea of dressing up as Doctor Zayas come from? <laughs> What do you mean? Um, So, you know, one of the great things about being in show business, if you're me, is that you get to do all of these things that you're interested in and that you like, and you get to be a part of the world. I'm very good friends with this guy, a guy named Greg Nicotero, who's a uh, special effects makeup artist and one of the producers and directors of The Walking Dead. And the first thing Greg ever directed was a short movie called The United Monster Talent Agency, which was sort of like a old Pathé newsreel, like, here's how the magic in Hollywood works. And it was, (laughs) the premise was that all of the monsters that you see were just real and they worked for this talent agency and they would get sent out on auditions. And while vampires, ghosts, and werewolves are still the stuff of nightmares, UMTA is moving boldly into the future. Thanks to the miracles of atomic age, super science. By human idiots. Stop that. And that was the motivation behind doing Planet of the Apes the musical was just like I wanted to do the makeup and see what that was like and and play it. So Years and years go by, and I'm on the phone with John Hodgman, who you probably know. Yeah, we've had him on uh, the yeah, show, sure. yes. Yeah, Hodgman's awesome. He had found online a photo of James Whitmore from Planet of the Apes reading Mark Twain's biography on the set of the movie. It's a pretty famous behind-the-scenes photo. And he did, like, an internet competition, like, can somebody show me Dr. Zayas doing Mark Twain? And we were on the phone talking about something completely irrelevant. And I said to him, I saw that thing. That's so funny. I wrote that as a sketch 20 years ago. 
<laughs> and he's like, "What do you mean?" I go, "Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote Doctor Zay's doing Planet, doing Mark Twain as a sketch for the for Stiller. We never did it." And then he just said, "Do you want to do it at my show at Sketchfest, which is this festival in San Francisco, comedy festival?" And my instinct was to go, <laughs> "That sounds like a lot of work." <laughs> uh, but then I thought, "Well, wait a minute." I'm friends with Greg and special effects guys. Here's what I knew. Because I was going to talk, I was going to do it with KNBFX. The makeup would be flawless. Mm -hmm. And because the makeup would be flawless, there would be two giant laughs. There would be the initial laugh when I walk out. And then there would be a secondary laugh when people realized that it wasn't just a mask, that it was really the makeup and because you, you don't see that in real life and as a comedian i just got very greedy to get those laughs i just wanted those laughs so i said yeah hang on a minute and literally the conversation was th like was this fast i was like call greg nicotero hey greg it's dana um is there somebody over there that i can pay to do a movie level dr zayas makeup on me it's going to be in San Francisco, and I'll, but I'll fly him up, put him up, take care of all the expenses, but uh, I need somebody to do it. Um, yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, sure, Andy will do it. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was just that fast. Um, it, was, it was just that fast. And um, I did it and, it, and you can see this on YouTube if you YouTube Dr. Zayas, Mark yeah. Twain. And I will say it was that that happened. I walked out and there was a laugh, and then I started talking, and there was a huge laugh. When I was a boy in Hannibal, Missouri, my comrades and I had but one goal. The destruction of the vile pestilence known as man <laughs> and to be a steamboatman and uh it was just really good and i thought that that would be the end of it and then joel hodgson called me and said hey would you want to do dr zayas for the mystery science theater telethon and then somebody else said, hey, I'm doing a Christmas show at this theater. Would you want to do a song as Dr. Z and then it just people kept calling me to do it. And it turned into this weird side business. And we did some really funny stuff. We did him as Elvis. We, I hosted a political benefit as Zelvis. And it was him in an Elvis jumpsuit. And uh, we sang songs. He did karate moves. <laughs> the thing that where the character really clicked in was... Mm -hmm. Let me guess. Um, Can I guess when it was? Yeah, sure. Was it when you joined Ben Mankiewicz on Turner yeah, Classic Movies? Yeah, that's exactly there right. There you go. That's, that's All right, exactly proceed. Right. How proceed. did you know Sorry that? To, I do my research. Yeah, that's exactly it. Turner Classic Movies was doing a thing called Fathom Events, where they show an old feature in theaters across the country on the same day. And they usually have somebody from the movie, and they interview them before, and then they show the movie. They were doing Planet of the Apes, and somebody, I think Ben, who's a pretty savvy comedy guy, uh, had seen it and said, could we interview Dr. Zayas? And I was like, yeah, hell, sure. I did it, and yeah, and it wasn't even a conscious thing. I was just like, but he's, I was like, okay, he's going to be interviewed. I'm going to play it as like he's an actor, and this is a movie that he did. 
and and just play it like when I was when I was a kid, you'd watch like when Orson Welles was on the Merv Griffin show. They're always name dropping, but they're not name dropping. It's just the they don't know people that aren't famous. And I'm very enamored of that era of show business. I'm much more interested in 1970 than in 2025. Uh, doctor, how did you come to be cast in the film? Well, it's actually a very fascinating story, but this is neither the time nor the place. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, I was in a play. I was just an actor. I was in uh, with Six You Get Egg Roll at the Pasadena Playhouse with very young Lindsay Wagner. Uh, and she, by the way, if you ever get a chance, mm -hmm. a delight. Okay. A dear. And, and, and it just, it, I mean, it wrote itself. And, and I actually think... That's the only way you can do it. And then that became his character. I got to use my vast warehouse of worthless knowledge about old showbiz and use it and create this weird, goofy character. Then you cut to the, the, uh, the pandemic, and I'm talking to Rob Cohen. We were going to do a little documentary about Dr. Zayas along the lines of Henry Miller is... Awake and Henry Miller Awake and Asleep, I think is the name of it, or Alive and Awake or something. And it was just like a day in the life of Henry Miller starting with him getting out of bed. And mm. we thought that'd be funny with Dr. Zayas rattling around his Hollywood mansion. But then Rob, he just went, why don't we just do like his talk show, like it was a 70s talk show. And I was like, mm -hmm. bang, that's it. From deep in the heart of the San Fernando Valley, it's hanging with Dr. Z. Tonight, Steven Weber with Rusty Steel and the Steel Wheels. This monkey means business. The Doctor will see you now. Hello. Hey, hey. Wow. Okay. Thank you very much. Good evening. Welcome to the show. You're watching Hanging with Dr. Z, and I'm Dr. Z. Thank you very much. We have Rusty Steel and the Steel Wheels over there. How are you, Rusty? Did you get a good night's sleep? I finally did get a good night's sleep. I tried a new technique, which really worked for me. What's that? Uh, weeping. So we did the device that they used on Space Ghost. They did it on Space Ghost because Space Ghost was animated. We did it because we didn't want, we wanted people to be safe. So the guests would be in another room and I would talk to them on a TV screen. The reason the show is as good as it is, and it is very good, yes, is because, you know, we have access to really brilliant people, and we like a fun environment. Uh, we like work to be fun and easy, so mm -hmm. uh, people are happy to work for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's weirdly beautiful. Yep. Weirdly beautiful. I think we could also say it's beautifully weird. What yeah. would you say is Dr. Zayas's best interview so far? Can you single out one? I can single out a couple. I thought that the Stephen Weber interview was great. I didn't realize exactly how funny he was until I was interviewing him. And then I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. You can play triple-A ball. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, a couple other quick questions. Uh, Tim Daly, yes or no? Uh, yeah, he's the handsomest man in North America. So. That's a Hollywood no, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> right. Yes is no. And he's related to Tyne Daly. He is. They're a brother and sister. And she was in a little movie called The Enforcer with Dirty Harry. Yeah, that's right, Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry and so right. Clint Eastwood. That's right, yeah. Who, who taught American, who taught men how to be men. Has he done this show? 
Clint has not done the show yet, but I'm going to get him as soon as he wraps up this season of Tales of the Crypt. I love the commercial parodies on each episode. My favorite is the Gert Froby one. Can you tell us about that one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gert Froby's Goldfinger Colonoscopy Chalet was an idea, and the original design was by Chris Shapan. Chris wrote some text to it. I revised the text, and then Mike Upchurch made it into a commercial. I say that because it was really like everybody who was creative had a hand in it. With state-of-the-art medical equipment, Gerd is setting the gold standard for healthy entrails. Yours, that is. With our highly trained anesthesiologists, your fears will drift away on a cloud of Delta-9 nerve gas. Gerd Froby's Goldfinger Colonoscopy Chalet. It's an odd job. But somebody's got to do it. I wanted to ask you what is next for Dr. Zayas and for Dana Gould. You mentioned that a 30-minute show is, is not off the table. Yeah, there's a couple things. Uh, we'll, be, <laughs> we'll be showing scenes later in the season of uh, the, the movie he made with uh, David Koechner called Del Monte and Flip Flop, which is uh, <laughs> a fictional movie that's not made, but we do have the trailer. It's basically like a 70s, like Charlie Varick. It stars Dr. Z, David Koechner, Joe Don Baker, Norman Fell, and all those Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Dana Gould, thank you very much for joining us today. Congratulations to you and Dr. Z on all of your success. Oh, thank you very much. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you're a mutant. Dana Gould is a comedian, actor, and the man behind the orangutan on the YouTube talk show Hanging with Dr. Z. You can find out more about Dana and Dr. Z at wpr.org slash beta. I look familiar. I, I look ordinary. I look like everybody's third grade friend, right? And they're like, oh, they call people. I get called every name. Hey, Violet, I haven't seen you in 40 years. No, I'm not Violet. Do you know anyone who has one of those faces that make you trust them right away? Well, Erica Krauss does. She joins us next to share the powerful story of how her face led to a gig as a private investigator for a landmark case. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. I became a private investigator because of my face. It's an ordinary looking face, but if I ask, how are you? Sometimes people start crying. I'm getting a divorce, they say. He ended our marriage by text. Or an immaculately dressed woman suddenly tells me, I hate my job so much I wanna kill myself. I've been saving up ambience. Then we sit on a concrete curb or stand in line at a train station or clutch clear plastic cups at a party as a near stranger in front of me dabs away mascara with a cocktail napkin and dumps out her mind like it's her purse, like I'm the one who can sift through the dust and use tissues to find what she's looking for. That's Erica Krauss reading the opening paragraphs of Tell Me Everything, the story of a private investigation. It's a combination of memoir and a literary true crime. Erica shares her story of how her self-described, ordinary-looking face led her to a career as a private investigator. She was assigned to investigate a sexual assault. The case involved a college student who was attacked by athletes at a party. Working on the case unearthed some of Erica's own trauma with sexual violence. 
The case became a national scandal and a historic civil rights case. Erica joined us to talk about the case, how the investigation affected her, and her impromptu career as a private investigator. Working as a PI was actually really fun to write about because it was a hard job, definitely a hard job, but and you saw a lot of, of human nature that it was difficult to see. But that was fun, and it was also easy in a certain way because I it was a lived experience that I had documented incredibly well. So I had all my memos, I had all these all this documentation, all all these dialogues. The hard thing about that was was organizing it hmm. because there was so much. There was just not just my experience, but also everything in the news and everything in the court, and and that was difficult. So my outline was a hundred thousand words, which is four hundred pages. That was the hard part of that. But writing it was was actually kind of easy because it was almost more like revising than it was actually writing. But writing my own experience was difficult because I'd never done it before. Mm-hmm. I never wrote about it ever. I don't think I even wrote about it in journals. So. It was just something I avoided at all costs, and here I was going to write about it in a book. So it it was sort of like um, pounding through a concrete wall trying to sort of get to some things that I had buried for a very, 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 very long time. Mm-hmm. What is it about you that makes people share the most intimate details and secrets of their lives with you? Well, I could ask the same thing about you, probably, right? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't have as good an answer. <laughs> you wouldn't answer. <laughs> you would if I could see you. Um, no, <laughs> I, I think I thought about it a lot, actually, because I was like, okay, well, it's it's just something. I look familiar. I, I look ordinary. I look like everybody's third grade friend. And they're like, oh, they call people. I get called every name in the world. Hey, Violet, I haven't seen you in 40 years. No, I'm not Violet, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think beyond that, I thought about it because during this period, the pandemic, when we were all masked and most of my face was covered, the same thing happened. People just talked to me a lot. They, you know, mm-hmm. the clerk at the grocery store would tell me that her daughter was in the hospital or it was just, it was constant. It never, it never stopped even, even then. So now I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking that people are dying to talk and reveal things about themselves. I think there's a hunger for that. I think a lot of life doesn't really allow for it. You have to put on a role or a mask. And then whenever there's an opening, if you see someone with that kind of face where you feel like you can talk to them for some reason, then you do. I think that's what it is. I don't think it's like unlocking secrets and cracking things open. I think people are really dying to disclose the hidden parts of them because it hurts to hide. Mm-hmm. Especially as you mentioned during the pandemic when there was more isolation and people didn't oh, have yeah. as much access to other people. Yeah, that makes total sense. How, how mm. did you become a private investigator? <laughs> it was so random. <laughs> um, so I was in a bookstore and a lawyer just, we were both in the same section of the books and he just started talking to me and he told me all these secrets about his life. And it was very normal for me, but he was, he actually very quickly became shocked at what he was telling me. And he, he was almost a li- even a little angry. And I said, it's okay. You know, this happens to me all the time. Please don't worry. I won't tell anybody. And he immediately saw a way to use that in it for his practice. And he, you know, in a, in a nice way, right? And he hired me right there on the spot in a bookstore after 10 minutes of conversation. And I said, I don't have any experience as a private investigator. And he said, perfect. 
And then we moved forward mm. from there. It's so strange because your life never really fits a narrative arc. It doesn't really fit narrative, right? When you, mm-hmm. you're going along your day and you're feeding your dog or whatever, it's not like that. But this case, this five-year period of my life really did fit a story. And that's why I ended up writing about it because I don't think I'd ever write another another memoir because I don't have another period of my life that works that way. But this one, upon retrospect, at, at one point I was like, this is a story. And it it's a story that also needs to be told because nobody's talking about this case. And it was the first Title IX sexual assault case in history. And it led to everything else and led to a lot of changes. So for me, that was, it, it was, a, a gi- again, a giant coincidence that this even could be a story. What did this lawyer who you identify by the name Grayson, what what mm-hmm. did he ask you to investigate? You talked about, about mm-hmm. it a bit, this Title IX case, but could you give us a little more detail about it? So the woman who who was the plaintiff, whom I call Simone, she was sexually assaulted at a party, a girls only party that she was having at home when uh, 20 to 30 football players and recruits showed up at her door and crashed the party. She was already intoxicated. So she went to lie down and between five and eight football players and recruits surrounded her sexually assaulted her and trashed the apartment and then left. But there were, besides those five to eight, there were also, there were many, many more in the very small apartment. So that Mm -hmm. was what happened. And again, it was thrown out by the DA. So it ended up in our laps. Yeah. Yeah. Many of the people you were Mm -hmm. talking to as a PI would have information that they'd like to hide. So I'm wondering, were there tricks you learned that made it easier to get information out of them? Yeah, and it was kind of interesting because I found I had already learned many of these tricks, and I think many of us have, but I think it's more common to learn socialization tricks if you have experienced trauma in your life. I think there are things you do, for example, say, uh, you know, in my case, I I had a a hard home life, so I, I would do anything to get out of the home. So I learned how to make people like me. I just would do anything to make them like me. One of the things that you do is you ask them a lot about a lot of questions about themselves and you ask important questions too. This is the simplest PI trick I've ever encountered and it really is so easy. You just ask the questions other people don't ask because they're trying to be polite or they're trying to be respectful as a PI. If you you just ask the question People have maybe never been asked those questions before, you know. I, they'll say something like it's a long story and then you say what's the long story? They have a choice, of course. They can tell you or they cannot tell you. But sometimes people are not just uh, being evasive. They're be- they're trying to be polite and trying not to dump on you. But they really do want to talk to you. They really do want to tell you things. So, and there are lots of things that you that we do naturally with body language or, you know, with our speech. But beyond it, the things that make us do those things with our body language and our speech are is really a desire to know. And I think that that's more of a personality thing. Like, do you want to know or do you not want to know about the person in front of you? If they say it's a long story or it's it was brutal, ugh, do you say what was brutal about it? Or are you saying, ooh, no, goodbye, see you later, you know? Um, yeah. And I just, you know, and some of us, I, I think this may be true of you too, is we want to know. Mm-hmm. We're curious about it. 
Definitely, yeah. And one of the tricks, one of the expressions that you would often use to great effect was, we're just talking here. Right. We're just talking here. That was my favorite. And, and I got that actually from one of my interviewees, football player. You know, he didn't want to tell me something, but he did. So then finally he just said, okay, we're just talking here. Right. And then I just, I use that all the time, but there's this idea uh, almost of, um, from TV that there's some kind of permanent record that like you say something to a PI and that means anything, like they can just take that to court and that, you know, and it's somehow on record at, 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 as you spoke this thing and it's concrete. So a lot of times I would just tell people, oh, we're just talking here. It's there because it was actually true there. I wasn't recording these phone, com- these um, phone conversations or, or uh, in-person conversations because it didn't matter if I was, it, you can't take that to court. So I'd say, we're just talking here. And then they'd open up more or I'd say, mm-hmm. this is off the record, but there's no record. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the recurring themes in Tell Me Everything is your relationship with your mother. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. I can talk about what it was. I can't talk about what it is now, but I can uh, sure. say, Fair enough. you know, back then it w- it was... I really wanted to be seen by her. I wanted her to even just acknowledge what I had grown up with and the abuse, the sexual abuse. And again, like we talked just a second ago about people who want to know and people who don't want to know. And I can't say what she wanted, but my experience was that it was very, very difficult to get through. And I tried and I tried and I tried. And and I always felt like there must be some way that I'm not trying. There's a there's some secret lock to the door and I can open it and then I can get through because what I was doing wasn't working. Every time I tried to tell her, she would basically reject me in some way or eventually disown me. And part of the reason I did focus on that is when after I she disowned me, I looked everywhere for books about that. I, I wanted to hear other people's experiences. What's it like to be disowned by your family? What This isn't medieval China. You know, this is modern day. And what's that like now, right? Um, you know, there's no exile of today, but it is a form of exile. So I looked and I looked and I couldn't find anything. I could find nothing on this topic, not on the internet, mm. not in books. And I thought, well, I can't be the only person in the world who has been disowned by a parent. You know, I have to write about it. And there might be someone else who needs to read about that because I know I sure did. I -hmm. definitely did. And since I wrote it, I've heard from some people who said, you know, I've never seen anyone write about this, but I I have a similar relationship to yours with your mother. And, Mm. you know, that made me feel less alone. So that makes me feel really happy to know that there are other people who can connect, who can just know that they're not the only one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, if you don't mind my asking, why did your mother disown you? Well, I that's that's between her and herself. I don't I can't I could only speculate on her feelings. I but I do know there was a lot of resistance to her acknowledging what had happened to me. Mhm. What kind of psychic toll did writing your memoir take on you? Oh, it was so hard. You know, at first when I started, I, you know, I started by just organizing and that took a long time. But then when I actually started writing, at first I was like, oh, this is easy. I don't have to make anything up. There's no, because with fiction, you have so many choices. Anything can happen. But with memoir, you already know the whole story and everything's already, it's done. It's a fact. So <laughs> I don't know. 
a little more time passed and I was like, okay, oh, this, this is kind of hard. And then, and then the deeper I got in, the more difficult it was until by the end, I was like, this is the hardest thing I've ever written in my life. It was emotionally difficult. And there were times when I, I really, I had to put my head down on my desk and type blindly. And that was, and then I'd look up and see that it was gibberish and then I had to do it again, but it was, it was hard. And I, I think, again, part of that is that feeling of exposure and vulnerability that was that was difficult for me because I'm actually a very private person. Uh, but at the time when I was working on this case, I never intended to write about the cases that I was writing about. I, I assumed someone else would. So maybe the lawyer would write about it or the plaintiffs would write about it or a witness or somebody else. So it's not like when you have an experience and you're sort of collecting fodder for later. It was never that for me. It was actually a big surprise for me to write about PI work. Well, I'm glad, glad you were the one to write about it because I don't think the book, no disrespect to Grayson or anyone else, I don't think <laughs> anyone else would have written it as compelling and fascinating and as important a book. Erica Krauss, thank you very much for joining us and congratulations on Tell Me Everything. Oh, thank you so much for having me here. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. That was Erica Krauss. She's the author of Tell Me Everything. You can find out everything about Erica at wpr.org slash beta. He's kind of defined in some ways by what he's not. He's contemporaneous with with the Brat Pack and, and that gang, but not really a part of that circle socially. Coming up, critic and journalist Keith Phipps explores four decades of Hollywood history through the multifaceted career of the inimitable Nicolas Cage. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. What is your favorite Nicolas Cage movie? No pressure. You only have over 100 films to choose from. Oh, I'm so sorry. Your time is up. It's a tough question, especially since Page has had a very chameleonic career. He's done comedy, Jimmy Stewart-ish everyman roles, even action heroes. Critic and journalist Keith Phipps is a Nick Cage authority. He's the author of Age of Cage, four decades of Hollywood through one singular career. One of the most fascinating things about Keith's book is the way he explores the changes happening in Hollywood over the course of Cage's career. Raising Arizona came out when I was in junior high, which was really when I started to kind of start pay attention to things. So, I mean, I'm confused and interested and sometimes frustrated by the changes that have come to film over the last 40 years. And Cage has been there the entire time, sometimes playing, you know, at the front of front of, uh, of, of Hollywood when he's the biggest star, uh, you know, one of the most biggest stars in the world. And sometimes kind of receding into the background as, you know, films seem to have a hard time finding room for him and for one reason or another. So I thought it was just an interesting way in to look at a bigger picture. And of course, Cage is himself quite interesting. And, and the idea of watching the, the films, you know, every film from his career was itself kind of, kind of appealing, to be honest. Mm-hmm, absolutely, yeah. You say that in order to understand Nicolas Cage, we first have to understand Nicolas Coppola. What is Cage's place in one of film's royal families? It's... An interesting place in that 
he was, you know, he, he's the son of August Coppola, who is the brother of Francis Ford Coppola. And as he described it, he kind of grew up as the poor relation of Francis Ford Coppola's family. Uh, he spent some time there. And, you know, in early interviews, he'll talk about how, you know, he likened himself to Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, where there's a sort of jealousy of what everyone has. And there was kind of a motivating factor for driving him to succeed early on. And it's a complicated relationship, though. It seems, it seems quite warm these days. And, and he appears in Francis Ford Coppola's films quite a, quite a often early in his career. Rommel Fish is his, his first role of any significance, uh, followed by you know, The Cotton Club, Peggy Soup Got Married, of course, being a very uh, big role for him as well. Uh, and that's one where he brought his own, it's really kind of an emergence of, of Cage bringing his own eccentric interpretation of the character and sticking with it. And in this case, almost getting fired for it. If, if it weren't Coppola directing, uh, there's a chance he might not have made it to the final cut of that film. Mm, really? Yeah. C- Cage's breakthrough role was as Randy in Martha Coolidge's 1983 teen rom-com, Valley Girl. What did you think of his performance in this movie? I, I really like it. I think he stands out right away as, you know, uh, he's a kid from the wrong side of the tracks in this, but he's not really playing that stereotype too much. You know, he's sort of vaguely punk styled, although he's just kind of his own character. Um, but I also, what I really do like about it is, is you know, he's he's funny and there's some, some kind of big romantic gesture moments in it, but it's a really s- sensitive performance too. Well, to tell you the truth, I kind of thought that maybe you and I could... Um... We could what? We could get out of here. Like, I don't think you'd be any more welcome down there right now. I mean, let's leave the party. I'm so sure. Kill. I'll meet you out front. Wait a minute. Where are we going to go? I don't care. There's a long stretch where he's kind of a heart, you know, heartbroken and, and trying to reconcile with his girlfriend. That is quite moving, and I, I think in ways, I mean, it helps that that Coolidge is is a director of 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 some quite a bit of sensitivity and and wanted to make more than an ordinary teen comedy of which there were many in the early 80s but i think he plays right into that mm-hmm. four years later cage appeared in the coen brothers raising arizona how did cage's 1980s roles reflect the changes that were happening in hollywood well i think with that you kind of get the you know a foothold in the emergence of of american independent cinema although although calling you know the coen brothers always you know will be independent film directors no matter who they're working for. Uh, that was certainly a larger budget than they had with Blood Simple. But, you know, he's he's kind of defined in some ways by what he's not. He's contemporaneous with with the Brat Pack and, and that gang, but not really a part of that circle socially, best I can tell, but uh, also certainly not lumped in with them professionally. Um, with Raising Arizona, it's, it's, it's sort of a... Uh, outside the box kind of role. Uh, you don't necessarily would you wouldn't necessarily drop drop a Rob Lowe or a Timothy Hutton in that in that part. But you know, someone who's willing to go 
big and cartoony, but again, as with Valley Girl, quite soulful. Uh, I think it's kind of ideal casting. I know you're worried, honey, but believe me, there ain't a thing to be worried about. We're absolutely going to get him back. There just ain't no question about that. We'll get him back. That's just all there is to it. And you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. That's final. That's absolutely the way it's going to be. That's official. You were right. I was wrong. A blind man could tell you that. Now, they ain't going to hurt him, honey. They're just in it for the score. But I ain't like that no more. I'm a, I'm a changed man. You were right. I was wrong. We got a family here. I'm going to start acting responsibly. So let's go, honey. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Even when he was a teenager and he's close to teenage and when he does Valley Girl, uh, he doesn't really – he reads as an older person. So uh, it's it's interesting that right after that is Moonstruck where he's playing opposite Cher who's who's older than he is. But it doesn't never really feels odd in that movie. Uh, a lot of things do feel odd in that movie, but 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 the age difference <laughs> is, isn't one of them. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't didn't Cage have kind of a meltdown on, on the set of uh, Moonstruck? No, you're you're correct. I, I'll, I'll offer it in terms of contrast because when you talk to or read interviews with directors who worked with him later in career, they, they always say consummate professional arrives super prepared, knows exactly what he wants to do, knows his lines, has the character down. Earlier in his career, this seems to be this seems not to have been the case. Or it was fairly tempestuous performances. He was on the on the set of the Cotton Club. Uh, he was very frustrated. There was a lot of acting out. And on Moonstruck, the you know the big there's a lot of of, of clashes with with uh, Norman Jewis and the director, and toward, I think it seems to have come to a head in the when filming what was ultimately the climactic big family scene at the end of the film, which is all warmth and reconciliation, and, and uh, was apparently quite tumultuous, involved some smashing of props and stuff. Loretta Castorini, will you marry me? Yes, Ronnie, in front of all these people, I'll marry you. Do you love him, Loretta? Ma, I love him awful. Oh, God, that's too bad. She loves me. I don't know what his attitude Jordan Moonstruck is now, but but he would go out of his way to talk about how he wasn't entirely comfortable with being in that kind of kind of movie in interviews at the time. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's fast forward to the 1990s when Cage made three films that he would later describe as his Sunshine trilogy: Honeymoon in Vegas, Guarding Tess, and It Could Happen to You. What's your take on the Sunshine trilogy? I think they're kind of overlooked. Um, I think It Could Happen to You is, is is the best of them. I like all of them to one degree or another. Uh, both It Could Happen to You and, and Honeymoon in Vegas were directed by and written by Andrew Bergman, who's a, a comedy, uh, a, a great comedy talent. And what's interesting about them is they really spotlight what an aspect of Cage's acting ability that isn't really thought of when we think about Nicolas Cage, which is playing like nice, ordinary guys, which he was really quite good at. Uh, if you look at It Could Happen to You, it's a very Jimmy Stewart-inspired performance and, you know, no eccentric gestures, no, like, sort of expressionistic acting techniques. It's just kind of inhabiting an everyday nice guy. And what's what's interesting is that there's kind of, even beyond those films, it's kind of that period for him. Like, if you look at Red Rock West – which is a great mm-hmm. uh, neo-noir that's kind of hard to find these days, but seek it out if, if you can, directed by John Dahl. His character is defined by by his really difficult-to-shake morality. I mean, it's described as, uh, others have described it as a film noir in which the whole tension is from the, the main character resisting 
being in a film noir, like succumbing to temptation and things like that. There's a ranch just up the road. You can drop me off there. What's the deal, man? Am I taking you back to your old lady or away from your old lady? Neither, actually. I just got a little business to take care of. Business? Is she pretty? Yeah, she is pretty. It's a really terrific film uh, that kind of had an odd history where it had trouble finding a distributor, didn't really it was it was kind of like too arty for main for the multiplexes and too mainstream for art houses. So it kind of ended up playing on HBO until it was you know one theater in San Francisco started playing it and it became a big hit and started making its way around art houses around the country, which is where I saw it. But it was kind of you know you know an early example of him what he does not really fitting in to the mainstream and as in some ways, despite it being an excellent uh, film with a really strong performance at the center of it. Yeah, very well said. How did the 1990s era of Cage's career connect with what was going on in Hollywood during the 90s? Well, I mean, it, it's an interesting confluence there where he is an unlikely, you know, the not a likely blockbuster movie star who becomes one. Um, I mean, he wins Best Actor for Leaving Las Vegas, and deservedly so. It's, it's a great performance. It appeared the same year as his uh, supporting performance in Kiss of Death, which is a, a kind of another overlooked film where he's he's terrific in that. But he, it was kind of a, you know, I'm reluctant to say imperial period, but I mean, he really, after like some ups and downs, you know, the reviews, he could not Get you know he could not get anything but 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 glowing reviews for for his work and and it is a you know I, I think a really nice stretch for him and then you know as often happens critical acclaim leads to opportunity to star in uh, really big movies he'd already signed up for The Rock before leaving Las Vegas was out and and earning the reviews it it did but that success led to Con Air led to Face Off uh, led to Gone in sixty seconds like these big summer blockbusters where he kind of, you know, is given a little bit of free reign to put his own spin on, uh, well, increasingly uh, some free reign to put his, his own spin on things. I mean, The Rock works in part because he plays his character as, as a, a nerd who, not unlike um, not unlike uh, Red Rock West, kind of resists the sort of movie he's in. You've been around a lot of corpses. Is that normal? Well, the feet thing? Yeah, the feet thing. Yeah, that happens. I'm having kind of a hard time concentrating. Can you do something about it? Like what? Kill him again? Listen, I'm just a biochemist. Most of the time, I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. I drive a Volvo, beige one. But what I'm dealing with here is one of the most deadly substances the Earth has ever known. So what do you say you cut me some friggin' slack? Like he doesn't want to be, he's not someone who would ever want to be in an action movie. He doesn't curse for much, much of the film. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an interesting take on, on, you know, trying to be a misfit within the, the a mainstream film. And of course, you know, what follows with Con Air and, and Face Off especially are some really, um, you know, big expressionistic performances that, that play into his willingness to go, you know, he always uses this, the phrase over the top is, is, is a style or is a choice uh, rather than, than an excess. And, and that's what you see in, in those films. Yes. Very well said. 
you mentioned leaving Las Vegas. This was a high watermark for Cage. Clearly, as he won the Academy Award for his performance, what was his approach for the film? Leaving Las Vegas is is you know it it's it is a, a kind of a, the fullness of of what he can do at at that point. It's a tough movie to watch, and I think in some ways its reputation has kind of maybe fallen a little bit over the years because in some ways the performances are the the best part of it as much as I admire uh, other elements of it as well. It's, it's definitely an acting showcase, but it, there's a lot of subtlety and nuance to what he does in that film. Be that as it may, I am not here to force my twisted soul into your life. I know that. We both know I'm a drunk. And I know you're a hooker. I hope you understand that I'm a person who is totally at ease with this, which is not to say that I'm indifferent or I don't care. I do. It simply means I trust and accept your judgment. There was talk of him trying to play it drunk, which he was discouraged from doing. The he kind of indirectly for Albert Finney, who played drunk in in uh, uh, Under the Volcano, uh, advised him to just kind of put a little taste of alcohol in his finger so he gets the, sp- the, the spirit of it. Um, but there are a couple of scenes where he is actually um, in- intoxicated, uh, like when he goes uh, nuts in the casino. Uh, but he had a family friend who was a poet and an alcoholic, kind of as an as an onset advisor. And it's also the phase where he talks a lot about drawing on music for his performances, like kind of playing bongos to get the rhythm down of what he's going to to do. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of elaborate preparations that go into it. I mean, I think it's what's interesting, what sometimes kind of feels spontaneous and off the cuff with Cage and with acting in general is often quite planned out and, and deeply considered. Yes, very much so. And Cage continues to bring that dynamic to acting even today. Keith Phipps, Thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on The Age of Cage. It's a must-have for any Cajunado. Oh, thank you, and thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Keith Phipps is the author of Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. If you want more Cage or Keith, you can catch Keith at the Wisconsin Film Festival this weekend. He'll be screening Vampire's Kiss. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Dana Gould, Erica Krauss, and Keith Phipps. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org slash beta or on Twitter at WPR Beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. And thanks to you, our alphas. More Beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. Well, I'm one of those fortunate people who like my job, sir. 